Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Brian Klass is a public intellectual with a restless mind, an assistant professor of global politics at University College London, and contributing writer at The Atlantic magazine, and occasional contributor to MSNBC, but he has interests well beyond politics, and has written a new book, fluke about some of them. My conversation with him covers evolutionary biology, chaos theory, counterfactual history, and inevitably the upcoming U.S. presidential election. But before we begin, a quick reminder. This podcast is only possible because of donations from listeners. Please visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation. Or you can go to the First Rough Draft of History substack. Different kind of content, but you can also make a donation there. Now, to Brian Kloss. I began by asking him what fluke is all about. The book is basically, in a nutshell, chaos theory applied to human events. And it's the argument that uh, small changes, often even accidental, arbitrary, or even random ones, can play a huge role in how our lives unfold and how society changes over time. And so the story I always tell people to start, uh, because I think it illustrates the point really well, is the opening story from the book, which is where a vacation is taken by this couple in 1926 into Kyoto, Japan. And they fall in love with the city. And then 19 years later, the husband in the couple ends up as America's Secretary of War. His name's Henry Stimson. And the target committee, which is deciding where to drop the first atomic bomb, picks Kyoto because it's got strategic value. It's got an aircraft manufacturing plant and so on. And uh, Stimson basically springs to action, intervenes, and, and twice meets with President Truman to get Kyoto taken off the list, and Hiroshima ends up getting bombed because of this. So, you know, there's sort of this 19-year-old vacation ends up causing the deaths of 100,000 people in one city rather than another. And that's sort of, that's the way the world works, but a lot of what our modern society runs on are models that simplify the world into five or six discrete variables, always big causes for big effects, and my argument is taking aim at that worldview and saying the small stuff actually really counts. Right. The thing is, of course, is that we we resist this. I say we, meaning you and I, and probably most people listening to this, would resist it. But we are slaves to algorithms that are pre-predicting how we will act, and they keep feeding us inputs. Mm. And so this book sounds like at least it, one part is, is very much pushing back against the idea that you can reduce all of experience to five or six basic things. Yeah, I mean, a huge amount of the world runs on that, what I think is a false assumption. Uh, I, I mean, I call it a lie in the book. But, <laughs> um, you know, I think there's there's a lot of stuff. I mean, economics runs on economic modeling. Uh, you know, po- politics is a lot of politics modeling in it and so on. But also, like, just the way that we think about the world has been, I think, infected by this mindset where, you know, you all the clever people tell you to ignore the noise and focus on the signal as though the world's complexity can be, you know, sort of reduced to these very obvious modelable things. And I describe myself as a disillusioned social scientist in the book because a lot of the stuff I was trained on in terms of the quantitative side of things forces you to do this. It forces you to reduce the complexity of reality into a very simplified version. So I basically, I, I, I agree with the statement by um, George Box who said all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I think the problem is that a lot of people have forgotten that the model is not reality. So, you know, when we use Google Maps, we know that Google Maps is not the same as the real world. We, we don't think that the forest is actually on the phone, right? 
But I think a lot of people who are making decisions are imagining the model is the real world. And I think it creates a hubris in our lives and in our societies that creates catastrophe more, makes catastrophe more likely because it pretends that you can control something that is actually swayed quite a lot by accidental arbitrary forces. And so I, you know, I'm trying to push back on that worldview and say it's time to actually appreciate, A, that we can't control a lot of stuff that we think we can control, and B, that a lot of the consequential events in history are caused by noise, uh, which is written out of every model. And every historian understands this. I mean, when they, when they study events, there's always these contingencies or counterfactuals that they can imagine, whereas you know, political science basically and a lot of other social science writes these things out in the search of a neat and tidy story where the pattern holds across time and space that if you have these x, you know, five x variables, you will get y. And I'll also state you know, there's a philosophy that's embedded in modern life. The entire self-help industry is tied to this, right? If you want to be happy, do these five things. I mean, it's a one-size-fits-all approach to humanity which basically says that there is a, a recipe for human existence that is just a few big ideas and everything else is, is meaningless. Fifteen things I could ask you out of, out of that initial statement. But to pick up on that last one, those books exist not because someone has discovered something new and amazing, like there's only five steps really required for happiness. These are marketing concepts, these books. Let's go back to the chaos theory part of things, because... The famous butterfly flapping its wings in China, creating the hurricane that destroys Miami. And I like Miami. I've never understood that. Why that butterfly as opposed to the butterfly one, one leaf over on the bush? Yeah. So the origin story of the butterfly effect is derived from a guy uh, named Edward Norton Lorenz. And interestingly, riffing off what I just told you about the atomic bomb, Edward Norton Lorenz was a person who was charged with meteorological forecasting during World War II in the Pacific Theater. So he may have ended up doing some of the forecasting, which is important because the second atomic bomb was supposed to go to Kokura, and it didn't because there was briefly cloud cover over that city, and it went to Nagasaki instead. The bomber boxcar arrived and, and had to circle and then went to the secondary target um, before running out of fuel. So Lorenz sort of understood the guesswork that was involved in 1945 meteorology, and he wanted to systematize uh, meteorological forecasting in a more sophisticated way. So he got this uh, very early computer in the 1960s. It's called the LGP-30. And he was able to have a simplified weather model that had, I believe, 12 variables. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because the way that chaos theory gets discovered is Lorenz one day decides to save himself some time by starting a simulation halfway through. And what he does, he looks at the computer printout of all the variables, and they say, you know, the wind speed is like one point, let's say 1.234 miles per hour. And the, uh, you know, the, the temperature is 8.679 miles per hour or whatever. So he plugs these values back into the simulation halfway through, and it runs, and the weather is radically different. And he puzzles over the data for a while and can't figure out what's going on until he realizes that what's happened is that when the weather system says, or when the computer prints out 1.234, there's actually several other digits beyond those first three. It's, it's truncating the values at the third decimal place. And when you get that truncation of the values, you get a totally different weather system over the span of a week or a month or a year. 
And so basically what chaos theory shows, it's the formal way of describing it is, is sensitivity to initial conditions, which means if you have any slight change early on in a system, it can manifest in a huge way later on. So this is where the butterfly effect gets popularized, this sort of metaphor and so on. Now, of course, you know, every butterfly matters. That's the point, right? So we, we imagine there's some specific special butterfly, but it's not. It's just saying that if there's a small change in a system, it can produce ripple effects that longer uh, down the road will be uh, manifesting in some particular change from how the world actually works. So, of course, butterflies are constantly flapping their wings and changing the weather system. It's just that minute details will create different weather patterns. And so, you know, what I take this to mean in, in human time scales is, one is something for the, for our lives I describe as the snooze button effect, which is where you wake up one day, groggily slap the snooze button, and you imagine your life rewinds and you don't slap the snooze button. Your life's going to be different. We don't know how, but it will be different. And I think that's something that we don't contemplate because it's just so bewildering to imagine that every moment is important. Um, but the on the societal change thing, I think there's moments where you have sort of build up uh, to a pivotal moment, and then it's more likely that some sort of cascade or Sometimes they're described as black swan events will happen. And those are where, you know, we can get into this more in, in a future question, but I think there's there's a way in which we've made our world more prone to the shocks of chaos theory. I think we've made a, a, our, our societies more vulnerable to the noise than it's ever been before in human history. Okay, the book is called Fluke, More Vulnerable to the Noise. We first met talking about politics and 2016, that was a fluke or not a fluke when Donald Trump ends up as president, the most manifestly unsuitable person in American public life? There's a lot of things I could say about Trump on this, so I'll, I'll try to condense it as best I can, but there's a few things that I think are worth talking about. Um, one of them is that the world works between order and disorder, right? So the order is the trends. The order is like the long-term buildup. So the fact that there's like this anger simmering in the United States fueled by, you know, right-wing talk show hosts and so on about immigration or globalization created the conditions in which somebody Trump-like could rise, right? So that's like, it's that's not a fluke. It's a long-term buildup of a series of choices that people make and so on. But there are things that are flukish that I do talk about um, one of them in the book, one of them not in the book. One that's not in the book is, it's slight speculation, but there was a period at the White House Correspondents' Dinner in 2011 where Obama ridiculed Trump. And, you know, people around Trump have speculated that that was the night he decided to run for president. Now, I don't know whether he would have run for president the same way uh, had he not had that joke told against him and he publicly humiliated and so on. But it's possible, right? It's also possible that things could have turned out a little bit differently in 2016 if Anthony Weiner had not sent another text message, which leads to the reopening of the FBI investigation, which probably played a significant role in, you know, 70,000 votes in three states that sway the election. So... There's things like that, that you could imagine a radically different world, but for a few small changes. Now, the stuff that I think is interesting to think about is that if you if you take, and this is somewhat of an abstract idea that you know may not have any immediate practicality for day-to-day -day politics, but I think it's interesting. I talk about you know the ways in which everything that happens is this sort of culmination of an infinite number of factors, which is exactly the opposite of the social science model of the world, where you reduce reality to five things, right? So I have this map I put, it's the only image that's in the text, and it's a, uh, it's looking back at how you know when when you look at the county level election results in Georgia from 2020, a pivotal state where Biden wins it and the Senate control completely pivots on Georgia, you can see in the in the uh, county level election results this little swoop uh, swoop of blue counties. It's sort of a curve, 
And what this actually is, is it's the lingering holdover of an ancient inland sea in the United States at the time of the dinosaurs, because there was an inland sea and the coastline swooped through this area of Georgia. Phytoplankton lived there and they died, of course, as the sea dried up, they became very rich soil. That's where the plantations were developed when slavery was uh, brought to the United States. And then when people were liberated from slavery, a lot of them settled there. It's basically the black, a lot, a significant chunk of the black vote, which skews democratic, is uh, in those counties. And so it's, you know, in one way, of course, that's a static fact about modern elections, but it's also literally true that it's partly de derived from this geological accident. So I think, you know, you can look at these from a lot of different ways. Like there's, the, the, the savvy way to describe politics, and this is one of the things that I lament, is that you always have to have a reason for everything, right? Like there always has to be a why Trump emerged. But what we're basically doing is we're, we're writing history with, you know, sort of hindsight bias. Like we, we saw what happened and then we explained Trump. So a lot of things that happened, you know, we talked in 2016 after Trump had a big, big rise and it's like, how do we make sense of this? Well, now we have information that shows he rose. There's a world in which Trump is unpopular because he runs in a different election. Right. I mean, if he or if Romney had won in 2012, he would surely have been the standard bearer in 2016. We'd probably have a more centrist Republican Party. You know, maybe it would have been better for the country if Romney had beat Obama in 2012 in hindsight, because it would have you know, potentially contained some of these forces that led to the extremism of the Republican Party. So, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's the point, though. And I think the thing is, you can't go on a podcast or on MSNBC, as I do sometimes, and say, I don't know. You can't. Like, we have to make sense of the world through narrative. And that's what history also does. And you stitch together a sort of neat and tidy story, and then everything makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think my point is that sometimes things just don't make sense. Things, things are sometimes just arbitrary and random, and they culminate in bizarre ways. Yeah, as, as a parent, I, I found that the most valuable thing I could do was say, I don't know, mm -hmm. to my daughter. When she was young, I, I have no idea. Can't explain that one. She used to accuse me of giving her Wikipedia-length answers. I said, no, this is not a Wikipedia answer. I just don't know, honey. Did you ever read Georgi Plekhanov's The Role of the Individual in History? I haven't, no, no. You've but heard I, of it. And, I, and I, I engage with this debate about great man theory and so on in the book. So I'm, I'm familiar with these sorts of ideas of how individuals shape history. Yeah, but I mean, the idea is that, I mean, as I understood the book 50 years ago, that there would have been a Napoleon, a Napoleonic figure, but the specific characteristics of the Napoleonic age belong to him, but that the forces of history would have thrown him up. When we first spoke about Trump, the forces of history, by then I was, I, I mean, I had long since reached my conclusions about the decay of American society and how it was reflected in our politics. Trump gives it a characteristic, but there would have been, quite possibly, and it wouldn't have been a fluke, someone so outside the norm at that moment to break essentially the logjam of social and historical forces that had trapped America for 40 years in this era that it, it was in, in the same way that, you know, after 40 years of New Deal policy, the oil shock of 1973 unblocked everything and drove America rightward. Yeah, so I, I completely disagree with this. And I think I think Trump actually challenges the political science consensus of this pretty strongly. I mean, political scientists previously would sort of say, writing about the president, like leave that for Tucker Carlson and the Fox News hosts for their books that are ghostwritten, right? Like, like this is something that the personality is unimportant. 
because political science is about institutions. So we, we understand the presidency. We don't understand the president. And I think, you know, when you look at the Trump phenomenon, I mean, I can understand that, yes, there's a right moment. There's a moment that makes it possible, right? It's, it's a sort of necessary force for Trump to emerge. But Trump's idiosyncrasies dominated the way that the Republican Party has developed. I mean, it's become a cult of personality around him. His extreme narcissism and ego and vindictiveness has changed the, the party. And if you delete him from the equation in 2016, like, yes, maybe you have a firebrand. Maybe Ted Cruz becomes a little bit more of a firebrand, but it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been Trump probably, right? So the way I describe this actually in the book, I, I, I take this head on, and you'll bear with me. It's a, it's a historical curiosity from evolutionary biology, but I think it's an interesting one. So uh, the standard answer to this that people bring up is Darwin. Uh, and, and it's because Darwin discovered evolution at basically exactly the same time as another naturalist named Alfred Russell Wallace. And in fact, Darwin decides to publish on the origin of species um, because he gets a letter from Wallace where he's like, oh my God, he's discovered the same thing. I better get this book out. He was worried about getting scooped. So it had been in his drawer for like two decades. And so the, people say, look, you know, okay, it wasn't Darwin. It would have been him. Okay, so there's a series of contingencies that I think are worth pondering here. The first one that I think is, is, is funny is there's a Cleopatra's nose theory of history, right? And Darwin is a, a, a literal interpretation of this, a literal embodiment of it, because the captain of the Beagle, the boat that he went around on, believed that you could tell someone's character from the shape of their nose. And he saw Darwin's nose and thought it was an ill omen and almost rescinded the offer from having him on the boat. So he ends up going on the boat anyway. He convinced him his nose. He, there's a quote. He says, he convinced me that my nose had spoke, spoken falsely, as he says in the, in the sort of diary. But, you know, the thing is, so then you imagine, okay, look, Alfred, Alfred Russell Wallace basically comes up with a very similar idea as Charles Darwin at basically exactly the same mo moment. And this is called like, you know, parallel invention or whatever it is. The, the, the crossbow was discovered like four different times in different places. But Alfred Russell Wallace was a little bit of a crackpot on some other ideas he had, right? He, he wrote a lot about seances and how he believed he could sort of conjure the dead back to life. He talked about conjuring things from thin air into existence during dinner parties and so on. And he became sort of, by the early 1900s, a little bit of a laughingstock for these beliefs. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because, you know, evolution's had an uphill battle as it were anyway, right? I mean, half of Americans still don't believe in it. But imagine if the guy who was the main proponent of it also was saying, I, can, I think seances are real. You know, that's the kind of stuff where I think, okay, so maybe it doesn't produce the same exact outcome. Maybe people agree evolution's real because I think it is a valid theory. I think it's scientific truth. But like, you know, Darwin's cousin is Francis Galton, who ends up being the man who pioneers eugenics. So part of the reason he pioneers eugenics is because he hears about Darwin's ideas through Darwin, his cousin, right? So like maybe eugenicism emerges anyway, but at a different time. So maybe it doesn't have the same impact that you know, is part of the intellectual scaffolding for Nazism. I mean, these are the kinds of things where I also talk about in the book, the origin story of World War One, And it's like, you know, the standard thing that people talk about is how it's this fluke that Archduke Franz Ferdinand sputters to a halt because his car breaks down in front of Gavrilo Princip, the, the, the assassin. But there's a, a more interesting story that I'm hoping will be popularized by Fluke that I came across, which I hadn't seen before, which is that uh, the, the, the Archduke came to England to a place called Welbeck Abbey for a hunting expedition months before he went to Sarajevo. And the guy who was loading the shotguns for the hunting party slipped and shot right next to his head. It was like a three-inch miss. Now, I don't know whether World War I would have happened if he had died in this hunting accident, right? Because he certainly wouldn't have been assassinated in Sarajevo, so the trigger event would have been removed. But I think World War I would have been different. 
And that's that's the point, right? Like what we the way we make sense of the world is through categories that we impose on it. We say, would World War One have happened or wouldn't have, would it not have happened? It's a wrong way of looking at the world. It's like if you change any variable about how it happened, you might have a different resolution to the war. Right. And like Stephen Fry, I mentioned this in the book, Stephen Fry writes this novel. I don't think it was, you know, it's particularly influential, but it's, a, it's an interesting novel where he looks at the question of, you know, killing baby Hitler. This is this famous thought experiment. And what Stephen Fry does is he, he takes this idea where somebody travels back in time and makes Hitler's dad infertile. So he can't have Hitler. But what he does that's a clever twist, and, you know, it's a very dark way of thinking about history, but he says, well, maybe actually this would be worse if Hitler didn't exist because the rise of Nazism still taps into the same forces that made it possible, but the actual person who becomes the leader is less impulsive, more disciplined, and the Germans got the atomic bomb faster. And then they win the war, right? So like the, the point of counterfactual history is I think it's one of these things where it's, it's, it's not like a, just a parlor game. It's a question that pivots on notions of historic causality. And my view with things like chaos theory is actually even if the forces are somewhat static and they are long-term, the way that the individual interacts with them totally changes the trajectory of those forces. So I, t I, I am at complete odds and Tolstoy is you know, also one of these people who talks about the inevitability of these forces and so on. I, I, don't, I don't think they're right. I think that the individual matters a hell of a lot. Almost all of human consciousness, both from a biological and a philosophical, psychological sense, is based on trying to take in sensory data, yeah. process it through our brains, and impose order yes. on chaos. I mean, that's basically w what is going on. Is your interest in evolutionary biology avocational, or is it going to become vocational now? <laughs> I don't know what you mean by I mean, it's like, what do, what do you mean by that? I mean, did you get into it because you were researching this book idea? Yeah. Or, or are you saying, hmm, I'm going to have a mid-career switch and do another <laughs> another advanced degree, but this time in, in evolutionary biology? Well, yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a shift, I would say, but it's sort of by accident. But my point is that th this need to impose order on chaos, yeah. were you aware of it from studying up on evolutionary biology, or did is it something that you, you figured out in your regular day job as an academic social scientist? Yeah, so there's, I guess there's, there's two parts to the answer. The first one is that when I would do field research, on my PhD was about looking at you know, rigged elections and political violence, coups and so on. Coups are like the ultimate black swan. They're highly consequential events. They're impossible to predict. And they're rare. But there, there are moments where you try to model them. And you spit out this really neat and tidy equation. And I did. I did quantitative analysis, and I, you know, the, the model spit out this neat and tidy equation. And then you go and interview people, and the idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic human experience just slaps you in the face, right? It's like you have all of these things where when you talk to a soldier or a general who's involved in a coup, there's contingencies, there's these split-second changes that could have turned out differently. There's motivations that are often irrational uh, based on false belief and so on. So that always did not sit well with me, that I was trying to explain the world in this sort of neat and tidy pattern. The more I read about it, I mean, the more that I got into the evolutionary psychology, evolutionary biology world of how, like, you know, our brains have basically been shaped to make patterns of a, a complex, sometimes random world, right? And there's this huge, vast literature. I, I quote Jonathan Gottschall in the book who wrote The Storytelling Animal, and it's a very good book about sort of how, how evolution has honed our brain to over-detect patterns. And we're really allergic to 
ex- explanations that are either disordered or are uh, unsatisfying. And this, you know, manifests like it's really obvious. He has this great like I, I laughed out loud when I read this in his uh, more recent book called The Story Paradox, where he says, uh, you know, we, we read Harry Potter. There's seven books. We have no idea how it's going to end. What we do know is that Voldemort is not going to die by slipping on a banana peel and breaking his head open, right? Like it would be like, it just like, cause it would just kill the book. It's like, we can't possibly have a resolution that is just, it's like he slips and falls off a cliff and then Harry Potter survives, right? So the point he's making is that we we crave these explanations. And this is why, you know, like murder mysteries completely flop if they don't make sense of all the random details. Like what they have to do is stitch everything together in this perfect story that, oh, everything now makes sense. And that big reveal moment is what you read the 300 pages for. Um, and I think that's basically why, you know, they're so successful. It's why I, lo- I love reading murder mysteries. It's, it's, it's an intellectual sort of proxy for what we're doing constantly in our world. We're trying to take all these things that are happening to us, all these things of social change, and stitch them together in a story that makes sense. But I, I was thinking more in terms of the way in which we've evolved as a species, sure. because we, we know that through the eyes, we are filtering certain sense sensory inputs, data, whatever you want to call it. But our eyes are different than a fly's eyes and our, or any number of other creatures' eyes because they're used, for their survival, their evolutionary survival, they have, they have to have different sensory inputs. And I, I've always thought that one of the things that we do is we start organizing straight away into past, present, and future. So we only exist in the present. But every moment of the present is tinged with some emotional connection to the past and what I call the anticipatory future. I mean, I'm looking out the window of your office. There's a car coming up the road. And I'm already anticipating that it will get to the junction without hitting another car. And if it does, it will make me jump. Because I, I didn't expect that, but I'm expecting there'll be no problem, yeah. and that's how we go through life. I put one foot, you put one foot in front of the other, and you kind of expect that the the ground will be there, and then periodically it isn't, and you twist your ankle, and you, you wonder what the hell. And that, to me, is is where the need to impose order isn't necessarily a pejorative thing. Mm-hmm. You, you do actually have to know, but you cannot know everything. I mean, if you did know everything, it would just be a scrim of incomprehensible data going into your brain. Yeah, so I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the the bait on the eye thing because it's a big. I actually wrote about eyes a lot in Fluke, and uh, they're really interesting as a framework to understand this. And then I'll move on to the question about sort of predictability and how we navigate the world through patterns usefully, which is true. We definitely do. So uh, the human eye is, is a really interesting thing because. Uh, it has, if you look, there's, there's this debate in evolutionary biology between contingency and convergence. And contingency is the stuff happens theory of the world. The convergence is the everything happens for a reason theory of the world. And so, you know, my, my, the, the easiest way to understand the contingency idea is the asteroid that wipes out the dinosaurs, right? If it doesn't hit, the, if it doesn't hit in exactly the right way, humans don't exist because it, it gave rise to mammals and it's the origin story of us. Convergence, though, is where the eye comes in because my favorite example of this is that 600 million years ago, what became the human lineage split from what became the cephalopod lineage, which is what octopuses and squid and so on are in. But if you open up an octopus's eye and you open up a human's eye, they're like the same. They're unbelievably similar. 
And it's because sometimes convergence produces outcomes twice because things just work. And this is where the order of the world comes in is like, if you produce an eye that doesn't allow you to process information usefully, that creature dies. So through survivor bias, uh, you, which is the engine of evolution, you have to survive long enough to have kids. You basically reinforce things that work and sometimes they work twice. So the octopus and the human end up with the same thing. Uh, there's an arbitrary contingency in how we perceive the world that I wrote about, which is color patterns. And there's a scientific paper that the best reason explaining why we have differentiation between red, green, right? Some people are red, green, colorblind. But one of the reasons why we are trichromatic rather than dichromatic, having three cones as opposed to two, is because the, the, the primates that we evolved from lived in a jungle where there were figs up against leaves. And the ones that could discern the figs at a distance, the red, green, <laughs> survive better. So it's like, I look at this, I'm like, so the reason we can see these colors is because of figs. I mean, what an amazingly random thing. But that's the best scientific evidence. Now, to get to the point that you're, the, the core of the idea is that I, I wrote a, there's a chapter where I talk about the shortcut creature. And I'm describing this idea that everything that we do is shortcuts. So those shortcuts are useful. We can't see the world. There's, 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 there's thousands upon thousands of wavelengths of light and waves, of radios and so on, we can't see. And they're part of reality, but we've basically discovered what is sometimes described as a manifest image of the world. It's, it's not the world, it's the way we perceive the world. And I describe this in the book, I, I'm riffing off of um, uh, some ideas from Hoffman and so on, these other people who have written books about this. Uh, and and what, what they describe is like, look, you know, you think about a desktop and a computer. That's, there's, there's no desktop. It's a bunch of metal and wires and so on, you know, these, these things that exist inside the computer, but like the only way we can navigate it is turning it into a shortcut, which is a visual desktop that we can move a mouse around, which doesn't actually exist. That illusion helps us do things. And that's basically what our senses are for, is how our brains have evolved. We, we navigate the world with this sort of filtered sense of reality and it's useful. And so, you know, what's really interesting, and this is where the, um, the idea sort of pivots to social worlds, is that sometimes the shortcut gets mismatched with the actual world you're navigating, which I think is something that's happened. My favorite example, by the way, I know you'll, you'll indulge me talking about beetles for 30 seconds, but it's, it's my favorite section of the book, I think. Is that there's this beetle in Australia that has a shortcut like we do, uh, where the male finds the female's body much bigger than the male's body, and it's got this dimpled pattern on the shell. And this works really well, it's a great shortcut. By complete chance, a beer company in Australia designed a bottle with exactly the same dimple pattern. And the beetles were starting to die off. These, these scientists were looking for these beetles and they found a beer bottle on the side of the road. And they found like dozens of male beetles trying to have sex with this beer bottle because they thought it was a dimple, you know, it was the same dimple pattern. And they're like, oh my God, it's going to go extinct. So they had to call like the beer bottle company and be like, you have to change the dimple pattern. Now I use that analogy to describe you know, some of the stuff that we're doing in modern society because the patterns of cause and effect that our brains evolved for were super simple. Right, like they were not the modern economy with eight billion people trying to impose order on this extremely complex system with you know international finance and cryptocurrency and all these other things. It was just basically you know if you uh, see an animal that looks dangerous, run away. That was the sort of main things that our brains evolved to deal with. And you know if you plant this seed, it will grow into something you can eat. So what I worry about is that like you know the way our brains are equipped to deal with navigating the world is when stable patterns of cause and effect exist. And you know we have designed and inha inhabit the world in which that's le less true than ever before in the history of our species. The underlying patterns of cause and effect in our world are so much, uh, so they're changing. Yeah. Slow down now. Yeah. That, 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 just slow down, because that's really, 
an interesting point. I want you to, okay. you go very quickly and <laughs> you make some wonderful generalizations. Oh, it's interesting, but I can't, yeah. that one I want to pin down. Okay. So I'll walk you through it. So basically, I, I talk about this in, in Fluke as an inversion of dynamics where you have different sources of stability or instability in the world. Okay. So if you look at human history, like, you know, there's a debate between 200,000 to 300,000 years, how long modern humans have been around. I, I split the difference and I say, okay, it's 250,000 years of humans. The average generation is 26.9 years. So if you do the math, it's about 9,500 generations of humans that have existed. If you clock that as a 24-hour day, more than 23 hours of human history have been hunter-gatherers, okay? So overwhelming evolution has operated in a period totally unlike the one that we live in. Then you have an agrarian period that's the bulk of everything else. There's a few minutes for the industrial age, and there's 11 seconds for what I call the information age, which is basically what we're living in now. And the way to think about this stuff is, in, in my view, is where do the sources of uncertainty and sort of risk and, and so on cause and effect, where do they come from? So for a hunter-gatherer, the sources of risk are daily. They're like, am I going to die today? Am I going to starve? Will my crop fail if I choose to, you know, the agrarian society? Will I get eaten by a predator? Will I find some berries? But like the world didn't change in terms of cause and effect. If you planted berries, uh, or if you gathered berries rather more accurately, they were likely to show up in relatively similar places year after year. If you taught your children how to gather berries, they could teach their children exactly the same strategies and it would still work, right? Parents and kids lived in the same world for about 9,100 generations, right? Where everybody on the planet lived through the, like roughly similar strategies for survival and dealt with roughly similar perils and their brains had to navigate these patterns and so on. Now, what's different today is that we have inverted that dynamic. So we have what I call local stability, which is to say every day that we have has a rough pattern that is predictable. I mean, I know that if I go into a Starbucks, the menu is going to be roughly the same. I can order almost exactly the same coffee in a bunch of different countries, right? I mean, we, we have engineered a world of extreme, unprecedented regularity in day-to-day -day life. You can conjure stuff up from Amazon and it will come to your house at exactly the right time. But we've flipped the instability and put it into the global macro scale, right? So like I grew up without the internet, now it's indispensable. Like the way that I live is totally different from when I was a kid to when I am you know, now in my, my late 30s. And these are the kinds of things where like when you think about them, uh, the world, the underlying patterns of cause and effect are in the past are least predictive of the future than at any other moment in human history because the world structure is changing faster than ever before. So this is with things like technology. Uh, AI is doing this as well. Actually, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. going to stop you there. Sure. While, you, while, while you're going through this, I'm thinking, well, um, the wheel. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm having the, the conversation with, with the father saying to the son, oh, when I was your age, I had to drag those <laughs> logs, you know, 10 miles to build a dwelling. Now you have the wheel and a cart, and it's no skin off your nose. You've got it easy. And I'm thinking, uh, that's being silly, but I mean, I'm also thinking particularly of the industrial age when – We've had this great leap forward. I, when I've written about the history of journalism, mm -hmm. and you realize that, that Reuters mm -hmm. started as basically homing pigeons, and then he glommed onto it electric telegraph wires, and so could take, could take a week to journey information, could be done in a day, and that he made his money because, do you know this story? 
you know, the ships would come from America with news of the Civil War and how would you speculate? And he'd send a, a ship off the west coast of Ireland, not a ship, a small boat, and got the information before the boat coming from America made it to England. Mm -hmm. And he could, through telegraph, get it to the London Stock Exchange and speculate profitably. This kind of thing has been going on for a while, so I'm not, I'm not sure it's quite instantaneous. What I do think is clear is nothing in my lifetime, and I, I grew up with television, but, I, but not ubiquitous, is the idea that you have this relentless pounding of what is new about the world coming into your head all day long, and almost all of it is false or inadequate information, you know? And that's a problem. But I do think that the information age goes back a lot further than we like to think. Mm. You know, it goes back long before Twitter and Facebook and TikTok and everything else. Yeah, so I, I, I disagree in the sense that I think there is something fundamentally different about the current age. So what, what I describe... Um, as the as the main shift, and you're 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 right. Actually, the 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 Reuters story, I had a version of it in the first drafts of Fluke, and I took it out. It was my editor made me cut twenty thousand words. So, um, but you know, it's 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 a it's a situation where if you think about revolutions in information, which I think you know, information is central to the human experience in a way that I think is sometimes underappreciated prior to today. Right? I think people are sort of waking up to how important it is the information pipelines we use to navigate the world. Every previous revolution in technology around information expanded the number of people who could consume news but not produce it, right? So you still had small groups of people who would, you know, the printing press, a small number of people had them. The radio, you had a number of producers who would produce news. But you didn't have anyone in the world able to produce information. The, the internet is the first time that you've gone from few to many communication to many to many communication, where anyone in the world can produce information. And that information can spread instantly, right? And so what I think it's what, what I think is fundamentally different about that period is it's made it so we're more prone to the noise because more people are making noise, right? And and I think it creates more contingencies where things can pivot because some crackpot says something and then all of a sudden loads of people believe it. And I think you know that was possible in the past, but it had to be sought out by more people. So the the speed of information traveling is one thing, right? This is something where you know you're you're right about the speculation. I mean, you get information advantages. Those information advantages in the you know high frequency trading on Wall Street now are milliseconds. They're not they're not days. They're <laughs> literally if your wire is slightly shorter, you know, they had to regulate this because the the wires on the stock exchange, if it was even a millimeter shorter, you'd have an edge. So uh, these are the kinds of things where they amplify contingency. So one of the arguments that I'm making in the book is that like cause and effect has always had aspects where flukes or noise or whatever will sway outcomes. I think we've engineered a society that's more prone to the small stuff mattering because the around the edges things can actually have an instantaneous effect on uh, the way the world works and so on. And we're also more beholden to a larger group of people being influential in shaping information and politics, et cetera. Shouldn't we be making a distinction between information that's actually factual? 99% of what goes up on Twitter today will be not factual, but we will call it information. Yeah, I mean, the, of course there's a difference between facts and, and lies and so on. I think the, the problem is that the, the line is blurring. I mean, it's not, like, it's not like false information never existed in the past. Conspiracy theories are as old as humans. 
But I think this is something where, you know, when, when you think about the proliferation of what I describe as sort of information production or what some people perceive as fact production, right? There's all these independent journalists who are just making up shit. And like, you know, I think it's it's one of these things where you see this all the time on Twitter and the cesspools of our information pipelines today. I think the what, what I'm describing is that there is a world in which the way people get news or facts about the world that they then use to make decisions has never previously been so democratized. But the flip side of it is that, you know, most of us are getting a, a sort of terribly poisoned information pipeline in terms of how we navigate the world. And I think that's the kind of stuff that, like, I think this shift is it is fundamentally different from every other technological revolution around information in the past. Okay. Can we talk for five minutes? Sure. Leaving Fluke aside, do you have a sense of where this year is headed towards November 5th? No, uh, that's the short. I mean, I think it's anyone who says otherwise is lying to you. I mean, this is one of the things that I think is important for us to have in our discourse. I mean, you, you, as I say, you can't say I don't know in these things. We talked about this previously, and you said with your daughter and so on. But I think that's the answer. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it's this is an unprecedented election. You've got you know 91 felony charges pending for Donald Trump. You have uh, President Biden, who's deeply unpopular and is perceived by a large chunk of the U.S. population as being too old to do the job. And, you know, there's a possibility Trump could get convicted of felonies before the election. There's a possibility of violence before the election. I mean, you know, this is where I think this is the the impulse to impose order is the polls. And the polls are a snapshot in time that does not reflect the outcome. It's, it's, It's an intellectual slippage that all of us have. It's like, the poll is if the election was held today, but it's not. That's not the question. The question is who's going to win in November. And, you know, I think about this in 2020. We're, we're, we're speaking in early February. Uh, in early February of 2020, coronavirus had not come to the United States, really. I mean, to find the presidential election, it upended everything about daily life in the, in the U.S. And the Biden-Trump race in 2020 was defined by something that none of us knew was going to exist, really. I mean, there was a few cases in, in, in China and some in Italy and so on. But like, you know, it's it, just understanding that you think, well, what's going to wallop us between now and November? Who knows? And all these things, you know, not to diminish the, the horrors coming out of you know Israel and Gaza, but it's a lot of the polling is fixating on how Biden is being perceived in this context. I mean, I don't know if that's going to be the primary driver of voting in November. And so a lot of the questions that we ask are completely tethered to the snapshot in time we live in. I have absolutely no idea. I would not be surprised if Biden won by 10 points, and I would not be surprised if Biden lost by 10 points. I mean, these are both outcomes that are plausible. Um, I think the one thing that is uh, likely, in my opinion, and this is my best shot at answering your question in a more helpful way, is that I do think that there's a certain segment of the U.S. population that is not captured by the MAGA base, that has not drank the Kool-Aid, as it were, for, for Trumpism, that doesn't want a criminal to be president. And whether those people choose to vote or not, I don't know, but you know, f- three to 5% of people looking at Trump and thinking, maybe not a felon, uh, I-, I think that could sway the election. So my, my best guess at this uncertain moment in time is that the trials are actually going to do something. And they're going to remind people of why they didn't like Trump in the first place, which a lot of people have forgotten because he hasn't been so central to their lives as he was when he was president. So that's my speculative answer is that I, if I had to bet right now, I would bet that he would narrowly lose. Um, 
assuming things continue on their current trajectory simply because the criminal trials will at some point cut through to a small segment of the population. Brian, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I am always aware of how much worse my radio voice is than yours. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks again to Brian Klaas. His book is called Fluke. And remember to check out the first rough draft of History Substack. Subscribe and make a donation so I can continue to do this work. Thanks. <laughs>